This is Stena. Thank you for tuning in to the Identity in Me podcast, or In Me for short. My guest for this episode is an instructor of religion at Phillips Exeter Academy. She gets real deep with it in this episode, and I'm happy to share this wide-ranging conversation with y'all that covers several aspects of her identity and her philosophy about death and dying. I hope you pick up some of the jewels she drops in this episode real deep. Enjoy. Okay, I'm here with Lena Feuerstein, who is a perpetually easygoing, warm, and thoughtful colleague. She radiates really positive energy all the time, so much so that she appears to be smiling all the time. We met initially in a parking lot on campus at night during one of her first weekends at Phillips Exeter Academy. From there, I got to know her gradually in bite-sized encounters at the campus dining hall and walkways on campus, among other spaces. And later, I was graced by her presence in a cross-departmental discussion group that I co-created and co-facilitated called Real Talk. In this group, we talked about different aspects of our identity and how they came to be. I learned a little bit more about Lena in that space, and she's here to share more about herself with me and with you. Lena, how's it going? It's going pretty well. How are you doing? Doing well, managing. Um, And what does pretty well mean? I guess it means uh, it's just going as it's going, or it is as it is. (laughs) And that's something that I sort of live by these days. (laughs) Taking it one day at a time, right? Yeah, one one minute at a time. (laughs) One of the things I didn't note in my introduction is that you are a religion instructor. Um, When did you decide that you wanted to teach religion for a living? Oh, man. Well, um, I would say that that sort of found me. (laughs) I don't think I ever really decided that I wanted to teach religion, but it's always fascinated me as a topic. I come from a pretty Jewish family, but um, when I was in college, I, uh, I took this class on medieval history and started studying a lot about uh, asceticism and um, and monks and nuns, and I I just kind of fell in love with this idea that you could like have some sort of mystical union with God. It was it's something that is touched upon in Jewish texts, but um, very secretly and mostly in the Kabbalah. Yeah. And so it's something that really fascinated me, and I just kind of followed that line of um, passion and sort of led me to teaching and divinity school and to Exeter. And what is aestheticism? Oh, yeah. Um, Aestheticism is, uh, it comes from the Greek word aesthesis, which means training. And it's basically um, a sort of dedicated training of your mind and body in order to reach an experience that's sort of outside of mind and body. In these in these communities, it's it's uh, an experience of God, really. But if you if you go to any monastery around the world, um, they participate in this process of asceticism where you fast for a while or you pray or you have a pretty regimented schedule and it transforms your spirit into one that sort of reaches higher levels of experience. Um, I think athletes actually, you know, prescribe to this in particular ways because they 
orient themselves in particular ways. They eat certain things. They, they, you know, have a certain schedule so that they are optimal for, for their performance. It's kind of similar to that. Okay. Thanks for that. I didn't, I didn't know that. I learned something new every day. And (laughs) with regard to you being a religion instructor, when we met and you noted that you teach religion, I'm like, Oh, is she about to, is she sizing me up? Like, you know, is she trying to get a read on my soul? Uh, am I about to go through, uh, you know, hey, um, your savior loves you. I'm like, I'm waiting for it. And it never happened. Um, so, so thank you for that. You're welcome. Do you generally That's get hilarious. that from people? Like, you're like, I teach religion. And they're like, oh boy, here we go. Yeah, actually, it's really hard when outside of the PEA community to say I'm a religion teacher without them assuming that I'm a, a Christianity teacher. <laughs> and so it, it's it's actually very funny to me because uh, I, I think all of us in the religion department do have uh, have senses of perception that pertain to the soul, but not in the ways <laughs> that <laughs> that you think. <laughs> but you're not going to communicate that with us. It's like, ooh, man, I. Looks like he's headed towards eternal damnation. I'm just gonna keep that to myself. <laughs> yeah. All right. What fun would it be if I if I disclosed that information? <laughs> Hopefully, I'm good. Hopefully, I'm. I'm assuming I'm good since you're here today and having this conversation. You wouldn't surround yourself with somebody who's going down the wrong. Or maybe this is my conversion experience. Um, so the next question for you along these lines is like, do people hesitate to like drink around you or, <laughs> or like, or just be totally fun like, out there? Um, that's hilarious. Actually, no, I would say that I, um, you know, like to hang out with all kinds and actually, I mean, I, I guess that assumption comes from certain, I don't know, Puritan, uh, uh, histories of of what it means to be a good religious person but I do not come from that tradition (laughs) at all and you know Judaism in particular does not separate um you know having fun and living life with being religious in any way um but um uh, you know I also think that uh religion for me is really broad it's more like a like um uh, spiritual understanding that I'm trying to continually trying to get to know through different types of traditions. And I've met people from all over the world and all different walks of life. And um, I think especially the ones who are just open to all experiences are the ones that I learn the most from in terms of what it means to be religious. And do you consider yourself to be religious? Yes. Yeah. Um, definitely I have, um, but I pull from a lot of different traditions in my life that kind of, um, make my own versions of, of, uh, the religions that I practice. Okay. So we're talking about your identity here. So you identify, um, in part as religious. And I ask all of my guests, this central question that drives the episode and it's how do you identify? Yeah. So when you asked me that, and I don't know what it was about <laughs> this today, maybe it was just today, but, but I, I responded as um, a death dancer was kind of my ident- identification. And 
I didn't exactly know what I meant by that, but um, I recently somebody sent me actually a really close friend of mine. She's my eighth grade English teacher, actually, and the person who inspired me to be a teacher. Um, and uh, she was very salient in my in my life. And um, she sent me a book of Emily Dickinson poems recently because I was obsessed with Emily Dickinson as a kid. And um, she she flagged this one poem that I love that's all about somebody who's dying and then a fly comes buzzing into the room. And um, I think that idea of death dancer was just kind of in the back of my mind um, as uh, both relating to this poem and also to just my experiences of life and how that's sort of shaped me. But there's there's a line in the la- in the, at the end of the poem that says, um, basically, it says, I could not see in, to see, which um, it's talk- talking about the, the woman who's dying and all of a sudden, like, things are blotting out and she can only see this fly. And then suddenly she can't see to see. And I've been wondering about that line for about 20 years now. <laughs> and uh, I think it really it really kind of speaks to how in order to see you sort of have to let go of whatever it is that you think that you see. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Mm. So I, (laughs) yeah. So I'd, I'd say that that process of letting go is pretty salient to my central understanding of my own identity and kind of dancing with that feeling of letting go of whatever it is that I see in order to see more clearly. So you don't mean like literal dancing, because when I saw that response, death dancing, I'm like, oh, this must be a new form of art that I'm not up on. Like <laughs> she's about to explain something to me. And it's just like, you know, we we dance around death. And I was going to have to like put myself in the mental headspace to like, <laughs> appreciate that. Death is so bleak to me. But anyway, um, so you didn't mean literal dancing. No, although I have done a lot of literal death dancing in my life, <laughs> but I, I didn't mean literal. I think maybe like a more of a metaphorical way in which I relate to the death experience, which we all have to relate to at some point or another. And those experiences are like wide ranging, whether it's actual physical death or transformative death. But um, I've learned a lot about how to kind of dance with those things instead of let them weigh really heavy on you. For example? Um, So I think from, I think the biggest example in my life was um, my mom passed away from cancer about five years ago. And um, she was diagnosed diagnosed when I was a teenager. I was 15, 16 when she was diagnosed. And um, the whole process uh, was about, yeah, about 10 years. And I had to learn a lot about how to kind of just be in the moment as you're watching somebody die and your own visions or understandings of life die and change. And she, she and I were very, very close. We still are very close. I talk to her every day. Um, but um, I was also like pretty much the primary person involved in her, in her cancer journey. 
And so it, it taught me a lot about how to just be with and be with the transformation and kind of let it transform you and let go of whatever it is you need to let go of in order for something new to come in. Can you think of like other tangible ways in which you evolved as a result of your mother passing away or going through that experience with your mom? Sure. Um, yeah, I, I think, I mean, there's an evolution there that happened in a lot of different ways in my life. Um, I would say I personally became much more bold. Death doesn't scare me at all. There are very few things that scare me. <laughs> hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> don't, don't gloss past that. When you say death doesn't scare me, it's like, now I walk through any neighborhood, any situation, you know, I'm, I'm good. Like what, like death is not this um, scary thing to me. Yeah. Go, please elaborate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I guess I just, it doesn't, it doesn't scare me as something that can happen to you because I've watched it happen. And, um, I don't know. I mean, there's so many questions about what happens on the other side of death, but for me and for my experience, like it was really beautiful. It was heartbreaking and, you know, gut wrenching, but also very beautiful. And so, um, I think, I think I'm more scared of like living with pain than I am with, of death <laughs> per se. I have a roommate who um, uh, is uh, belongs to an Orthodox Jewish community that helps bury bodies um, and prepare them prepare them for ritual um, burial uh, after somebody dies. We talk a lot about this about how like you know the the space between what you were as a sort of a body and what you can become in the sort of afterlife is a really kind of beautiful space to explore. Um, what it means, what, it, what exactly it means to, to die or go into the other beyond. And I, I spent a lot of time thinking about that. I taught a class on death and dying at Exeter about two years ago and um, sort of became really fascinated, especially by the Tibetan versions of this and, and how that life is actually deathless in a lot of ways. It's just continual transformation. Um, and that idea really appeals to me that, you know, things that were my mother, for example, is still here in very many, you know, different forms and forms that I have to identify and relate to in a new way. But there's a, there's really a, a deathlessness to existence mm. that mm. I didn't understand before. Yeah. So the way in which I relate to that, this is really profound, by the way. Um, I got my life jacket on so I don't drown. <laughs> um, <laughs> so my dad passed away about 18 years ago, almost 18 years ago. And um, he's somebody I talk about at least once a day. Um, he implanted in me a value for education um, that uh, I still carry. And I attempt to pass on to my children and others who encounter me, particularly young people. Um, I'm always teaching something or, or stressing the importance of being informed. And I get that from my father. And so like, even though he's physically passed on, I'm still, um, he's still living in me in that way. 
um, and has connected with others in this way. And the other way in which, um, you know, my, my father is still very much present in, in my life is through basketball. Now he's this Haitian immigrant who never watched basketball in Haiti. Um, he played soccer, came here to the United States. And at some point in the early eighties, um, he noted a lot of people at work talking about basketball and Larry Bed and Magic Johnson. And, um, and he watched basketball at home. And at the time I was really into wrestling. I wasn't ready for basketball, but anyway, fast forward many, many years later, if you ask the average person who knows me well to tell you five things about me, I promise you one of the things they will mention is basketball. He <laughs> yeah. loves basketball. And I've played it, I've coached it, um, and plan to continue to engage with it. And so I guess when you were talking about that, I was thinking about the ways in which my father continues to live in me and be expressed to others. And so thank you for helping me process that a little bit more. Yeah, you know, I really do believe that whenever you're engaged in that activity, your your father's there, like his spirit's there. In the same way that when I'm, um, so my mother was an artist and um, and also loved to cook. We loved to cook together. And so whenever I'm making a dish, and I, I cooked a lot during COVID, <laughs> like a, a lot, a same. lot. <laughs> and uh and she like she'll just come in and she'll you know give me the instructions for what to cook and I I really don't like following directions I feel like that's something I've like always had since I was a kid but particularly if someone hands me a recipe I'm like my eyes just glaze over and I just don't <laughs> so instead I'm just like no nah, no nah, man I'll just ask my mom like what to put in it and it, mm. it, it works out it works out great and um, she's uh, she's half Italian. I've come from an Italian, German, Jewish family. <laughs> and uh, and so a lot of the kind of cooking and the sharing of food comes from both of those parts of my life. And yeah, it's a it's a way that I connect with her soul and her spirit. And um, and also through art, when I go to art museums, something I've been dying to do since the pandemic uh, happened. But Every time I'm like hit by a by some you know beautiful artwork, I can feel her also there with me. So yeah, that's beautiful. And you did invite me to um, have a meal with you sometime, and so um, I will get to know your mom a little bit more in that experience. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for, right. sure. for sure. And we're gonna do it when it's safe to do so, everybody. Right, right. <laughs> we're gonna eat outside more than likely. <laughs> so now you just mentioned um ethnically you are yeah just italian and uh and german jewish and okay. uh, so a lot of jewish heritage on both sides of my family but the primary primary places like geographical places are italy and germany on my father's side um they're german jews they're very few of us left, um, but they left quite before the the Holocaust started. So we were pretty lucky. I'm I'm I feel very lucky. Do you consider um, Jewish to be an ethnicity or a religious identity or both? And can you explain? 
Oh, definitely both. Um, I would say it's it's not a racial identity. It's an ethnic identity. Um, and um, it's sometimes it frustrates me when I fill out forms and like racial slash ethnic is in one category because I, I very much distinguish the two. But so I would I would call it an ethnic identity as well as um, a religious identity for me. And the reason why I call it um, ethnic is because um, it's it's there's a sort of genetic part of my life as a Jewish woman that I um, have really grappled with a lot uh, in terms of like certain diseases that are that Jewish women are predisposed to, and it really kind of especially when I was going through the process of figuring that out. Um, so my mom, when she died, she passed away from ovarian cancer. And, um, and uh, all of the, the women in my sort of mom's lineage have sort of grappled with this type of cancer in one way or another. And my grandmother, great grandmother actually also died from it. And uh, who was um, uh, Jewish as well. And so uh, there's a, it's called the BRCA1 gene or the BRCA, B-R-C-A um, gene that runs in primarily in Jewish women and makes you pretty at pretty high risk for ovarian and breast cancer. And so I went through a whole period in my life um, of trying to kind of <laughs> reckon myself with this. And, you know, with modern science, a, a doctor could tell me at age like 20, like, oh, you, you know, you, if you have the gene, you have to, you know, get all of these different types of surgeries before you're like a certain age. And it was very stressful for me, for sure. So yeah, I think because that it primarily runs in Jewish communities that my, my ideas is what it meant to be a Jewish woman of like how that's like really in my, my blood um, and sort of the voices and, and struggles of my ancestors in my blood that, um, yeah, I, I definitely consider it an ethnic identity. Huh. Okay. So I didn't know this and my question is, is this um, with all Jewish women or is it in German Jewish, Italian Jewish? Like, I, I'm not clear on that. Can you explain? Yeah, it's uh, so not all Jewish women. No, it's um, about I think the statistic is one in 40 Jewish women, usually from Ashkenazi heritage. So that means kind of Eastern European um, are, are diagnosed with this gene. It might it might even be um, less than that, but you, but primarily the people who are diagnosed with this have Jewish ancestry. So, and I, I went through a long time of of trying to study, you know, what what exactly that means. <laughs> what what does it mean to have a, a predisposition to a disease, and how does how do histories of trauma overlap with yeah. your kind of um, you know, medical condition. Um, so yeah, it, it was a big, it's still an ongoing process for me, but I sort of decided in my mid twenties that I didn't want those surgeries, um, at least for the time being. So what was I going to do? And I went through this whole process of, of researching, like what, you know, what are, you know, other factors besides genetics that influence cancer or, 
Um, and what, you know, and I sort of fell into this hole of looking at um, things like epigenetics or research yeah. where in talking about how your environment um, plays a big role as well as the trauma of your ancestors in what types of medical conditions you have in your life. Okay, so you talked about epigenetics. I want to make sure that my audience gets this definition down, and I'm not even going to attempt to um, uh, to paraphrase what you just said. I've read about epigenetics. I'm fascinated by it. Um, and so can you expand on that? Um, and um, I was going to ask naturally, like, what are the environmental components of this cancer that Ashkenazi Jewish women tend to have genetically? Like, how did that come about in that region? This is just part one of our conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. Stay tuned for the second part of this episode in the coming week. Until the next segment drops, keep reflecting.